Hey everybody, the trumpets are blaring and the drum rolls are rolling because we are here on The Goods, a film podcast. And what month is it, Dan? Circus month! Yes! It's circus month! We have queued up another theme month for you here. Uh, In the wake of a couple months ago, we did time loop month uh, in the winter, kind of tied to uh, Groundhog Day which happens, obviously, at the beginning of February. I wanted to maintain the balance of power between myself and Dan, so I knew at some point I had to assign a theme month to sort of rein in his picks for a few weeks. It's a good excuse to maybe pick some things that we may not have otherwise thought of. Uh, You know, it gets us on one train of thought for a little while. And uh, I didn't really have any uh, calendar-specific reason for making July Circus Month, other than I have a bunch of September and October picks, so I knew it had to be before then. And so here we are, Circus Month. Circus Month! Yes, indeed. And so, the film I have selected to begin our month is the one that comes to mind when I think of a circus movie. Uh, Dan, uh, before we dive in, what were your thoughts when you heard of my plan for Circus Month. Did you have abundant ideas coming to mind, or did you have to fight a little bit to choose your first pick that you'll announce at the end of the episode here? (laughs) Um, I would not consider myself a circus enthusiast. I did not have any movies in mind. I now have a short list of possible picks, including the one I'm going to pick later. I think I went to a circus when I was like four years old. I vaguely recall my parents having a picture of me riding an elephant. But when I say that I'm not a circus enthusiast, I don't mean that to say I am against circuses. Although I think they present some moral gray areas, which we might touch on a bit later in this episode. Yes. Mostly just that I haven't thought very much about circuses. I don't really have any opinions about them. So... This is bringing me to a space that I haven't spent much time in before, but I did spend this whole week reading. You sent me a paper you wrote on P.T. Barnum. I read that. I I learned a little bit more. I'm looking for a good book about the history of the circus to get in the spirit. That's what I do when I want to get in the spirit of something is I find a nonfiction book on the topic to read. So I'm hoping I can find a good one of those. Oh, man. It's yeah. This is taking you to the other side, you might say. And I think you're right that if if I challenged you on Time Loop Month, you've certainly challenged me here on Circus Month. So I think this will be fun. Good. Yes, the movie I've selected, you probably saw the title when you clicked the little uh, episode button for your podcast feed. It is 2017's The Greatest Showman, starring Hugh Jackman, a podcast alum, obviously star of 2001's Kate and Leopold. I think that's his most famous credit, yeah. Yeah, uh, I don't know of anything else. Uh, if we don't cover it on the pod, I don't watch it. And he's joined by another familiar face, Zac Efron in a prominent supporting role, star of the High School Musical franchise. I have a lot of residual goodwill towards Zac Efron, so I was happy to see him pop up here. But I'm in a pretty different space 
in terms of my relation to the circus. I am a big circus fan. Sad to see them go, as they have in recent years. It's really petered out. Uh, Interesting to note that when Greatest Showman came out, it was about seven months after the closure of Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey. After, like... I mean, it was a conglomeration of several circuses over the decades, but uh, after, you know, 150 years of continuous operation since the time of this movie is set, basically. Um, but uh, first they announced, we, we're not going to have elephants anymore. And then in pretty short order, it all just collapsed after that. I guess you can't, hard to have it without the elephants, maybe. I guess if that's why you're going, it's like, no elephants, why even bother? Maybe is the train of thought there. But I'll say that my family did go and see the show uh, shortly before the elephants were retired. So, And uh, we had been several times in the past. And you might ask, why assign a circus month? And if I were Dan, I would probably write out an eloquent paragraph to explain this it's just an entertainment experience that you don't get other places just there are so many images and sounds and smells associated with the circus that are maybe now lost to time i wonder now are kids going to run away and join nothing (laughs) it was a good trope to run away and join the circus i don't know what the equivalent would be now Now, are the only clowns going to be creepy clowns? (laughs) I don't know. Clowns never bothered me as a child. They are grotesque, but grotesque features can create both comedy and horror. Yeah, I feel like the pendulum swung too far against clowns in the past decade. It's like, now, whenever you talk about clowns, that's the only thing anyone will say, oh, they're so creepy, man. You know, like, it, oh, what's up with their makeup? It's... I mean, there is some creepy about them, but I'm with you. There's some nuance to the clown, the the conceptual clown. I'm not saying I like would want to be hanging out with a clown every day, but I'm with you that that, that we. But maybe every other yeah, day. They shouldn't be a singularly a horror icon, I guess. Um, but I've got like in the scrolling uh, desktop background on my computer of of pictures of me and my family. Uh, one of them. It's me and my brother and a clown. And uh, I think it was the... It might have been the 2017 visit. It's not too old of a picture. So I'm here as a... I don't know if you say a circus advocate, a circus uh, archivist. Um, But as Dan mentioned, uh, I majored in American Studies in college, which is basically history and culture in a mishmash. And the closest thing I wrote to a thesis was this Uh, about 20 page paper that i wrote called barnum and the american museum the showman's role in creating american popular culture this was a research paper i wrote a lot of those as a humanities major um but i think of this as like the culminating one i thought it was really good it was quite readable and i learned a lot and i I really liked your central thesis here which is that pt barnum is underappreciated for shaping what pop culture is when we say the phrase pop culture 
and and kind of think about it and the role of spectacle in that and he was kind of a catalyst for that being a i don't know like a central force that captivated the nation because as you pointed out although yours was more about museums than carnivals you pointed out that one of his museums over i think it was 25 years took in more customers than there were people living in the united states which i thought was just bananas it really was a phenomenon Right. And so the paper talks a bit about things like how Barnum used the newspapers and how he, how he would advertise that way and how you really need a mass media to create a sense of national culture. And the the focus also was on the American Museum, which was a museum that Barnum operated in Manhattan. And for people who are not super familiar with the Barnum story, they might be surprised to come to the movie The Greatest Showman and find that most of it does not take place at what we would think of as a circus. I mean, the musical numbers are kind of presented in an interesting, non-diegetic way, represented as, like, circus acts. But it takes place mostly at the American Museum. So had you heard anything about this movie? before I served it up? It's funny you ask that. I go back to... I was just listening to the first episode of our podcast recently, and it was reminding me that I had been pretty separated from the world of movies, new releases, what people were talking about, for about five years or so, from around 2015... Until now, maybe maybe a couple years after 2015, maybe it was more like when I had my first child in 2017, but I did not have my finger on the pulse of this movie as it was released. So I didn't really have strong preconceptions of it. The the main thing that I kind of had in my head is that it had mixed reviews and that it was kind of big spectacle reputation for being kind of dumb and maybe riding on the coattails of other musicals, but not a flop, just a mixed kind of hit, I guess. That was really all I knew about it. Right. It it made a pretty good amount of money. It's like, I don't know, 500 million plus. And for an original musical, that's pretty good. This features songs by the same team from La La Land. And so I, I think they're doing good work to keep... Uh, live-action original musicals in the mix. That's cool. Even if they're not 100% critically lauded. Well, the musical that probably got them the gig in the first place was Dear Evan Hansen, which was a Broadway musical that won the Big Tony Award Best Musical. And the same team wrote those songs, too. And that is actually being turned into a movie this fall. Oh, man. I didn't even put that together. So I had this background studying Barnum and the American Museum. And as part of this, I went to the college library. This was like in 2010 or 2011. And I found out they had an original copy of Barnum's autobiography from like 1860. And it was just there on the shelf in like a blockbuster plastic clamshell case. And like falling apart in there. And I took it out and I read it from this, if not technically a first edition, pretty much the same thing. I, I love old books. I love pulling out old books 
it feels like you're tapping into some ancient arcane knowledge and i don't know it like it puts me in the mindset of being a very wise and learned person yeah it feels like you're doing something significant so jump ahead seven years it's 2017 i have this background knowledge the arcane knowledge as dan says and i see a trailer that there's going to be a barnum musical starring hugh jackman in a top hat i say i have to see this movie Whatever happens, I gotta go see it. Because, I mean, old-timey Hugh Jackman, always pretty good in my book. But especially when he's got a top hat, as in The Prestige. It sounds like like that's basically if Brian made up the concept for a movie. That's what I thought watching it. Like, is this a dream? (laughs) Is this something my mind is generating? And I had to check it out. One other thing to add is that my family has a tradition of will go right around Christmas time to see a movie. And sometimes, especially in recent years, that's like the only time of that year that we'll go all together and see a movie in a theater. So whatever movie we happen to choose tends to leave an impact. Usually it's just whatever the new Disney is. We'll go see that. So in 2017, I said, can we make the movie (laughs) Greatest Showman? And... Weirdly enough, my brother got really into it. He, t- he tends to, like, fixate on whatever the thing he's just consumed is. And so one year, we saw Moana, and he, like, really, really likes Moana. I have nothing against Moana, but he, like, got very into it. And I wonder if there's some equivalent of, of like, movie propinquity. <laughs> just, like, if you watch it, you become fond of it, because that's what happened across your path. All that to say that my brother is a very big Greatest Showman fan. Uh, my reaction to it was more mixed, coming to it with some knowledge of the actual history. Which, semi-spoilers, this movie plays very fast and loose with the truth. So I feel like we've maybe touched on this. I was thinking this might be only the second biopic that we've watched And I'm sure you recall what the other is. It was our second episode. (laughs) I remember it was The Founder. And now we have another sort of founder. Indeed. And as we went into The Founder, um, you were a self-professed pretty big fan. And I I was a little bit colder on it. And I made some suggested rewrites. And I think I gave it a three out of eight. And one thing that I said there that I I very much hold to be true, is I don't like biopics. I think they tend to be among the least interesting movies. Like, if I want to learn about a person, I don't want to do it in, like, a narratively created movie because then you're bound by truth instead of good story, which is why one of the main reasons I like to go see movies. And so I rarely hold it against biopics for manipulating the truth in favor of telling a better story. So, to me, that is not a major prejudice against Greatest Showman. Well, I'll say that I think this was the fourth time I've watched it. Maybe just the third. But I didn't realize until the end of this watch-through, hey, wait a minute, this is a biopic. <laughs> the The music hides it a little bit. Then I I realized, oh no, (laughs) I signed another one. (laughs) And it's probably not going to be the last. 
Certainly it will not be the last musical that I assign, but uh, I don't know if it'll be the last biopic either. I, I tend to like them just because it's like a quick way to get some information and maybe afterwards you read the Wikipedia article and you learn a little more. I wouldn't necessarily seek out a biopic, but I, I don't object to one being tossed on. I also think um, most biopics tend to be what I have previously described as the middle brow slog where it wants you to think that it has a moral, but it just smashes it over your head and is like very uh, manipulative in in the the themes and the stories it's trying to tell for some reason in biopics that bothers me particularly i guess that's fair have you ever seen the aviator no i have not although that one i'm actually pretty interested in is is that a scorsese i think it is it's got leo as howard hughes right that's one I checked out not too long ago. Thought it was pretty good, but not not imminent. So you're safe for a little while. So that's the stage set for you now. As I went into this movie, Christmas 2017, just shortly after it came out, and uh, had somewhat of a mixed reaction to it, as we'll explore here soon. Um, and uh, that sounds to be kind of across the board the reaction to it. It was like, some people liked it, some people didn't. It was somewhat polarizing. Right. It's a movie where, I mean, we'll talk more about it. Depending on what you're trying to get out of the movie, your reaction will be very, very different. And the, the standards you hold it to on different things. Right. And the last bit of preamble I want to discuss is that immediately after I saw this movie and was mulling over these mixed feelings in my head, I came home and I saw a notification on YouTube that a channel that I follow had posted a review, and this comes from YouTuber Jenny Nicholson, and her review of Greatest Showman was titled, I Hate the Greatest Showman More Every Moment. <laughs> I don't know if it quite merits that level of vitriol but a lot of the talking points she brought up really resonated with what i had thought in my first watch through and so some of those concepts will be uh, probably thrown here into the mix i just wanted to add that as a footnote i watched that review too i'd like to present a rule for circus month there's no fuddy duddies in circus month i thought she was too much of a fuddy duddy in that video Okay, yeah, my dad is not a fan either. He says, she talks too much. She's always complaining. <laughs> but I simp hard for Jenny Nicholson. I, so, uh, I know that I am not alone in this. Uh, the first video I ever saw her post was about um, Star Wars. She's got quite a few Star Wars videos. And this is a pretty girl talking about Star Wars. So already there's going to be a large uh, interest pool. <laughs> But I feel like it gets more niche than that. She talks about animatronic history and theme park history. So certainly content relevant to my interests. And she's quite good looking. And I will say that she is my age, which is probably not the case with a lot of YouTube stars. Sure. Uh, 
just to say that what throws cold water on me every time is the absolute Vietnam wall of Patreon names at the end of everybody who's already <laughs> jumped on the Jenny train. Yeah, there, <laughs> there's something lost when you know that you're not the only one simping for someone. When you're it, this one-on-one connection you have watching a video of, uh, or whatever the case may be of someone talking that that kind of sense that you're sharing a, a space just the two of you kind of diminishes i've had similar reactions when you just see oh here are the 3000 people who are subscribed to my patreon i find that i agree with approximately half of her takes and sometimes when i agree with her takes i don't agree with her takeaways or like her her reactions to those takes but i do think she usually has pretty interesting things to say the one thing that I always really appreciated that she talked about is she is pretty down on Rogue One and thought that at least Episode 7 and Episode 8 were better than Rogue One, which was a train that I was also very much on as well. I thought Rogue One got way too much hype. And so I was on board for future Jenny Nicholson videos when I saw that she was medium on Rogue One. She's genuinely very funny and insightful and picks good topics to talk about. So, uh, hit that subscriber bell. I think we probably just made a stronger pitch for Jenny Nicholson than we've ever made for our own podcast feed. Well, you guys are already here. So you found us, somehow. But now at long last, let's raise the curtain and talk about some of the things that happen in 2017's The Greatest Showman. This is a biopic of P.T. Barnum, the circus impresario, who did a lot of his showmanship beginning in the 1840s. Obviously, it all gets kind of contracted here, as biopics are wont to do, everything kind of gets compressed in terms of time. But the events depicted here take place mostly between, like, 1845 and 1850. Although, as I said, there are some decidedly ahistoric things happening. It kicks off with a musical number called The Greatest Show, which is a fantasy, I guess, that's happening in the mind of Child Barnum. But it lets us see Hugh right here at the start, doing the full-force circus show. Then it kind of dissolves to show that this is something young Barnum is imagining. Yeah, this is a strong opening. I, I like this song. I think it might be the catchiest song. It really struck me, and I don't know if you've thought very much about this, as very Hamilton-esque. And I think there is a very strong Hamilton influence on this film in a lot of ways. The big thing that I was thinking a lot about is like reclaiming the history of this person whose historical reputation is somewhat mixed or compromised and kind of like re reclaiming it in a affirming sort of way like kind of centering it around and making cool this this historical guy but even just like bringing in the, a very poppy brand of hip-hop and having that be kind of the basis of a lot of the numbers it's not quite as hip-hoppy or rappy as hamilton but there's definitely vibes of that there that's really interesting I definitely agree with what you're saying about, like, making an old-school historical figure relevant and maybe kind of refurbishing their image. But I think of Hamilton as being, like, very smart and being very information-dense. 
And all of the songs, I mean, the whole thing is like sung through or rapped through. And every line is giving you information. Like, at age 10, they put him in charge of a trading charter. You do not get specifics in Greatest Showman songs. Every song is like a pop number that has very little to do with... Like, they're not going to name drop the Fiji Mermaid in a Greatest Showman song. It's all about feelings. Like, you could divorce it from the context of 1840s circus events, and you would still get something out of the song. I completely agree with that. They definitely went the route of having thematically relevant lyrics that just add texture, but are not very in-universe specific. So, I think that's a good distinction between this and Hamilton. But then we get an act where it's Barnum as a kid, and he is a poor child. A poor boy from a poor family, as the song goes. He's kind of apprenticed to his tailor father, and we see the dad, Barnum, making an in-house tailor appointment with this wealthy guy, who, I guess his name is Mr. Hallett. He's got a big house, and here Barnum bonds with Hallett's daughter, Charity, because he makes her laugh. This is the springboard for a cross-class romance. And, you know, I guess, that I'm a sucker for movies where it's the poor dude and the rich girl. As depicted in what we've called T-97, the James Cameron Titanic film. Yeah, I think we recently came to the conclusion that both of us tend to be fond of stories that have that kind of romance. We have also watched Some Kind of Wonderful, and there were things we liked there feel like there were one or two others that, that we brought up that had that too. And we get this extended number where P.T. Barnum as a boy is exchanging letters and meeting secretly with this girl, and he's laying out the plan for his grand ambitions. Again, not too many specifics here, but he talks about how he wants to, like, create a collection of cool stuff from far away. So this is kind of the idea for the American Museum and his circus shows forming. And I really like this number. This is one of my faves. Just the way that it's shot, it's very inspiring. We've got pretty strong vocals from the young singer. I don't think it's the same singer as the actor we actually see, but the singer is a kid named Ziv Zeifman, and the song that he's singing is called A Million Dreams. Yeah, the, the kid actors are actually pretty solid across the board in this. Um, I think you're right that there is some vocal manipulation going on to make them better singers, but at no point was I viscerally annoyed by a child actor, which is something we know that happens sometimes when I'm watching a movie. Yeah, Ziv is the anti-Jansen. <laughs> wonder what Jansen Panettiere is up to these days. I wonder if he'd come on our podcast. <laughs> Yeah, Jansen, you get to roast us in return. You've earned, you can punch down, it's okay. <laughs> but in between these snatches of the song, we're also seeing some bits and pieces of uh, young P.T. Barnum's life, where he's struggling, trying to make ends meet. At one point, he's like starving on the street, and he gets handed an apple by a deformed person. What we're going to... At least I'm going to refer to for the rest of the show as a freak, because that is the term that is uh, used in the movie, uh, at least when people with these anatomical oddities are exhibited. 
as a show. And you kind of get the sense that this is going to be the spark for him. That he's going to think of maybe creating a freak show. But it doesn't happen yet. There's a lot of loose associations here. Like, I agree it's odd that he meets this deformed person. And, like, that really has no direct bearing on him creating his freak show down the line. But I do think it works in the sense of, like, planting the seed that there is dignity in these people and they can create something great and do great things. If you're going to enjoy this movie, then you have to be okay with that sort of loose association in a script that can occasionally be very troubled and crowded with ideas and things happening that don't always cohere in exactly the way you expect them to. Sure. But uh, Barnum and Charity correspond throughout the years and they do end up getting married and by the end of this montage barrage, they have a daughter on the way. And then they've got two daughters. And then, like, the song just keeps coming back. It doesn't really end when you think it's going to end. Um, Jenny Nicholson said, I wondered if this was just going to be the rest of the movie. <laughs> that was a good line. Yeah, the... The grown-up charity is played by Michelle Williams, who is an interesting cast choice. I mean, first of all, she is a real-ass actress, and she imbues this character who is often not given very much to do with, like, a bunch of depth and personality, kind of like how in The Founder, Laura Dern didn't have that much to do, but really made her character shine. But... She was an odd casting because I did never got the impression that she could either sing or dance. So I'm not sure why she was specifically cast. <laughs> I'm, I like Michelle Williams. I think she's an awesome actress. So I was happy to see her. Yeah. And the main thing that I did not agree with from Jenny Nicholson's take is she said that Barnum does not have a character or a goal. Whereas I think this opening number does a really good job of setting up what Barnum's goal is, which is to climb socially. He's this poor kid, and he wants to be able to stand alongside the rich people and genuinely measure up. I also disagreed with that take. I actually think this movie almost has trouble of keeping track of all of the goals that P.T. Barnum has. That definitely is probably the main driving one though like this class disparity and the kind of associated identity crisis that comes with it that's definitely something that drives him from start to finish in this film right and he presents it in the song as like he is gonna want to provide a good life for his wife but really it's like you know that's point b that he wants to get to but he's gonna just want to keep climbing whether or not she wants to keep climbing. After this, we finally got adult Barnum, Hugh, and he is sitting in this sea of desks, as we've seen in, like, the apartment. He's got a soul-crushing office job working for a shipping company. He looks out the office window, and there is a less-than-subtle cemetery out there. <laughs> so... You're kind of putting together the pieces in his head that, oh, I could be stuck in this job forever and this is not the life that I'm looking for. Uh, but then the boss walks in 
And he says that everybody's fired because the shipping company's fleet of ships has just been destroyed by a typhoon. <laughs> so they don't have any more work to do anymore. So I guess just out of the wastebasket, P.T. Barnum picks out the now valueless deeds for all the sunken ships. And he winds up using them as collateral to get a loan for his next business venture, which is going to be the American Museum. I want to pause for a second and, and look more at this scene that you described. There, there's also one other element of this scene, which is that as the boss is basically announcing their their bankruptcy, Barnum is attempting to pitch, I guess, using like gliders and proto airplanes to be a part of their business. I think that's important because this scene is now basically doing, I was thinking about it. It's basically, I think a microcosm of some of the pacing issues of this movie. This movie is an hour and 48 minutes and I like short movies, but musicals have a hard time of being short. If they're going to have songs, every scene like this movie is almost a half hour shorter than high school musical two. And it has like four times as much story to tell. And I think it like really shows they, they did a lot of shortcuts and corner cutting on telling stories, which is not to say that they didn't tell the story, just that it happened with great economy, perhaps too much economy. And this was the scene that I was thinking of in particular. So like here are all of the scenes that we would expect in a story like this that are fit into this one scene. So one, we learn that he has a, a kind of soul crushing day to day job. We also learn that he has a knack for crazy, but possibly brilliant ideas. And, oh, he also needs to work up the courage to share his ideas with the world and like the higher society, like the boss. And then there's also the scene where he actually does share it with the boss, but the boss has to reject it. But then also the scene where the company fails and now he has to try and take a chance, as he said, stealing these, whatever, the deed for the lost ships and using it as collateral to try and put his crazy ideas on the line with some like overly brave risk taking. And like all of that happens in a short scene. It's not a long scene. It's like a minute and a half. And I feel like there are a lot of scenes like this in the movie that are very multi-purpose in terms of like progressing the story from point A to then point G, basically. Yeah, it moves at a very brisk pace. I mean, you, you mentioned Hamilton. Hamilton is like three hours long on Disney+, Plus, so you need to give some time to a musical that has to impart a lot of information. Right. And that's not really what we get here. Uh, but while he's at the bank trying to get this loan, Barnum runs into a diminutive man. Back in the day, you might have said a midget. Uh, he, he's got some degree of dwarfism. And this is a guy named Charles Stratton, who is presented in the movie as a 22-year-old. I think probably because that's about the age of the actor they were able to find. In real life, this was like a little kid. I mean, he was a small person, but he was only like five years old. And this, this person's going to be important to Barnum's career soon. Uh, but this still does not give him the idea for the freak show yet. Barnum buys the American Museum, which uh, 
I'll, I'll link to my paper in the multimedia section here because it, it does a pretty good job of setting up the history of the American Museum and what it is and what kinds of things are there. But at this point, it's mostly like a lot of taxidermy. I mean, you've been to a museum, a natural history museum, and that's kind of what this is to begin with. <laughs> also, while we're talking common plot elements of movies we've talked about on the podcast, now we have a dad suddenly making a large purchase without consulting his family. <laughs> that's a known pet peeve of mine, yeah. This time it bothered me a little bit less because it was kind of the central theme of the story here is this guy is is going to be taking big risks to move up. But yeah, he, he just kind of walks home and he's like, I'm not employed and also I own a museum now. <laughs> anyway, this ship thing, this hoax of using the deeds of the sunken ships, this didn't happen. There's That's going to be common. If we listed every single thing, we'd be here all night. But he's got the museum now. It's full of, like, ostriches and all kinds of dead things, which his daughters point out. Daddy, your museum has too many dead things, and that's why it's not drawing crowds. And at the start, he is struggling to sell many tickets. Um, so mulling over this advice from his daughters... This is when he finally hits on the idea that he's going to recruit some freaks for his show. And this time, while I was watching the movie, I noticed that there is a through line because when he makes this decision, there is an apple on his desk. Oh, I didn't catch that. And so it's a callback to the very first freak who hands him the apple. But it is... Very subtle, probably too subtle, because I definitely <laughs> did not notice it before. That, that's, I like that. That's a little clever. I did not notice that either. Things are just coming at you so fast, it's hard to, to keep track of all of them sometimes here. Yeah, you really gotta watch this movie three or four times. <laughs> but so, now we get a montage where he's recruiting uh, unique human performers. He goes and he tracks down Charles Stratton whom he says he's going to bill as General Tom Thumb. This is one of Barnum's most famous performers. If you know anything about Barnum, you might have seen pictures of him together with Tom Thumb. And we get kind of a casting call where we get some other historic members of the Freak Show troupe. So you see Jojo the Dog-Faced Boy, and you see the Siamese Twins, but... They're, like, never acknowledged. It's strange. Like, at one point, there's a poster that says the Siamese twins, but he never talks to the Siamese twins. They never have any lines. There's not even really a close-up on the conjoinment. Like, I did not really catch that that was what they were supposed to be. It's two Asian guys who stand next to each other in the background in a lot of scenes. But it's like they wanted to have their cake and eat it too. Like, they knew it was important to show the Siamese twins, but they didn't want to ever get controversial by saying Siamese twins because that phrase is kind of seen as like a pejorative label for all conjoined twins. But it's not wrong. These twins were from Siam. 
Interesting. So, I don't know. They, their names were Chang and Ang, and they really were famous members of the troupe. So, they're sort of there and sort of not. Uh, there's some albinos. There's, like, a tall guy, a fat guy. And then the, the star of the show, kind of the breakout Fonzie of the bunch, is a bearded lady who is a good singer, apparently. She's singing a song, and I guess we're to believe that this, at least, is diegetic, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, I like this actress. I had never heard of her before. Kiala Settle is what you have listed here. Um, she had good presence, and I-, I could see her being in stuff in the future. And yeah, she has, she's got a killer voice. Although she kind of oversings a couple of tunes, but that's okay. You don't necessarily need subtlety in this movie, but I, I was a fan of her. Yeah, I remember the Academy Awards that year. She came and sang whatever the nominated song was, and it was a pretty strong performance. It was probably This Is Me is going to be my guess. That's the empowerment anthem. I, would ima- I haven't looked up what was nominated, but if one was nominated, I would imagine it would be that one. Right. But also interesting to note that she is often the one, I think she has the most lines of any of the freaks. And she talks a lot about how we've never been accepted and we always have to hide our faces. But like having a beard is optional. I speak from experience. It is possible to shave a beard. You do not have to live with one. The one moment that made me laugh out loud in Johnny Nicholson's review of this she has the line, our, our mothers never loved us or something like that. But if you're a bearded lady, you're, even if you're going to unnaturally grow a beard, it's not like you have a beard when you're a baby. It's not like your your mother would have known that you would have had a beard then. And Just the pointing that out made me laugh pretty hard. Although I'd probably go and see a bearded baby. That's true. That would be, that would good... be something. Actually, there is a thing where uh, babies, they don't get beards, but because the hormones are just out of control in like the first six months, they, babies get hair in weird places. And like, even my daughter has like fuzz on her upper lip, which, you know, she's a, she's a 19 month old kid. Um, And she, she had that up until pretty recently, but Yeah, I would definitely see a full-on bearded baby for sure. (laughs) And we get this, like, pump-up anthem that Barnum sings to the freaks called Come Alive because they are, like, wary about, you know, they've been hiding all this time and now he's asking them to come out and perform in front of a bunch of people. Uh, But he's saying, no, you can do it. You need to just embrace your self-empowerment. Something that he does while he's kind of recruiting the freaks and putting on their first performance because this is another one where things are just happening a mile a minute but he is like adding padding to the clothing of the fat man and like strapping the tall man onto stilts and this is kind of the one representation we get in the film of barnum's humbug which is like his most famous trait that he would present hoaxes as being factual. But they go very light on it, to the point that it's hard to understand what they're going for. 
because later there's this newspaper critic character who keeps popping up and he's very down on Barnum for being lowbrow. And one of the criticisms he makes is that, oh, everything you do is fake. But really, we don't see much of anything that's fake other than this one beat in this one song. Because the bearded lady has a real beard. Right. You know, there's like a three-legged dude and that's not shown to be fake. Yeah, I, I did think there was going to be more of this than there actually ended up being. Like, I thought a theme was going to be, like, some blend of authenticity versus fakeness. And that would be contrasted with kind of, like, the high class where people put on airs. And there would be some kind of dissection of the similarities and differences of that. There is, like, one scene later on that there is an opera performance at the same time that the, the freak show is performing. And the way that different people are reacting, but just kind of putting those side by side kind of raises the the question of like, what does it mean to be real entertainment? You know, what is entertainment that we value and stuff? And but this notion specifically of the humbug and the truth, I do feel like the movie lost its thread on that, that that could have been a really interesting thing to see more of and maybe see some consequences of. Definitely. But you're right that highbrow versus lowbrow art is a really important theme of the story. Also, this like roller coaster ride of self-respect that the freaks have and confidence is also going to be all over the map as the movie goes along. Uh, this was something that Jenny Nicholson comments on that really struck me the first time I watched it. And I think it has not bothered me as much in subsequent views, but... I really was scratching my head at how many times the freaks had to be pumped up. Like, they would be down on themselves, and then a triumphant song happens, and now they're proud of themselves and self-empowered. But then they need it again, like, 20 minutes later. Yeah, that happens like three times. But I mean, you know, I sometimes I need a pep talk to start the day. <laughs> One of the things the critic writes about barnum's show he calls it a circus in kind of a critical way you know just ah oh, it's chaos but barnum seizes on that phrase and one thing that was actually kind of historical is barnum pays to reprint the bad review in a bunch of additional newspapers because no publicity is bad publicity and he just wants everybody talking about the american museum I like that. And so that was really the sort of thing that Barnum would actually do. Real IRL Barnum. I feel like once a decade or so, there's some blockbuster movie that does a similar thing. Like they'll print posters with bad review quotes about like how grotesque this is. With the idea being that you're going to draw in the people who are just curious at, at what the what is so appalling about this thing. Even so, though, we do see that being marked as a kind of nouveau riche upstart and a lowbrow entertainer starts to bother Barnum. And he gets to a point where he is wanting to make inroads with some of these stuffed shirt rich people. For instance, he's got a daughter who wants to be a ballet dancer, but then once she actually meets, like, 
rich girl ballet dancers, she doesn't like it as much because they're mean girls. And they look down on her. They say that she smells like peanuts and stuff. But Barnum really bulks at this. And, you know, kind of as a reflection on himself, tells the daughter that she can't quit ballet. It's like, no, you're, you know, you belong there as much as anybody and you need to stick with it. And that felt, ultimately, this is a very minor plot point in the story, but it felt kind of Citizen Kane-y to me. Like, there's a bit in Citizen Kane where his wife or his mistress entertains the idea of being an opera singer, but then she's really bad at it, and he, like, can't accept that. And so he, like, pays to, like, completely rent out a theater just for her, because, like, if she's going to be associated with him, she's going to be the best, even if she isn't really. I actually kind of liked this Daughter Does Ballet subplot. It definitely is pretty slight, but it's one of the things here that I actually think works kind of subtly in this movie as a sort of totem or reflection of what Barnum is kind of thinking about his own show and like kind of his own moral compass as it relates to how he views his his show like for example later when he's kind of starting to stray from his family he misses the show and here he's like ambitious crazy hungry about the the daughter um doing ballet i don't know i kind of liked it as um just a recurring thing to kind of check in on where where Barnum was with his family at this point. Also, I noticed that Barnum has two daughters in this movie, at least, and you have two daughters. That's true. I don't know if that had any resonance at all. It's not something that gets a lot of focus, but no, I, I, I'm a sucker for anything where there's two daughters for sure. And just at my age, I'm more sympathetic to dads and trying to figure out how they relate to their, their kids. So I appreciated when we got some of that. Barnum starts really pushing into his social climbing campaign by reaching out to a guy named Philip Carlyle. And this is where Zac Efron comes in. This is a member, like the the son of a wealthy family who's kind of looking for something to do with his life. They mention that he's a playwright, but that he's kind of bored, hobnobbing with the rich, artsy crowd. And this person does not exist. Zac Efron does not exist. Interesting. That's a pretty big creation. (laughs) So you did not know this? No, I did not. (laughs) Yes. There is no Philip Carlyle, and there never was. And they give him a lot of screen time. And so this was the biggest thing for me, probably, watching this movie. (laughs) They spend a lot of time with Zac Efron doing things and saying things. Like playing important roles in the story, yeah. Yeah, keeping everything going that just didn't happen. (laughs) This is not part of the Barnum story. You could argue that he kind of has some things in common with James Bailey, who ultimately would run the circus after Barnum's death. You know, Barnum and Bailey. But they didn't even name him Bailey. If they wanted this character, they should have just made him James Bailey. And had him play a role earlier in Barnum's life than he actually did. I I like that. Um, And then at the end of the movie, you could have zoomed out and seen Barnum and Bailey on the tent. 
Yeah. But no, it's Barnum and Carlisle. <laughs> which is not a pairing that you've heard before. Barnum tries to work his Svengali magic on Carlisle by inviting him to a barroom meeting. And here we get probably the most traditionally Broadway musical number. Because Barnum presents his pitch in this song called The Other Side. And here I think the choreography really shines. Because you kind of just got to watch it. But there's a lot of like rhythmic elements incorporated. It's almost like stomp. Because they're passing glasses and drumming fingers on the table. And like taking their top hats and scarves on and off. I really like the bar that this was set in. There's a later song that's also set in this bar. I want to go there and get a drink. It's got like all these elaborate bottles and spigots and stuff that drinks could come out of. But it's also like shiny and crystalline. And uh, I liked it. I wanted to, I wanted to sit down there and order an old fashioned or something. Yeah, I'd like to visit too. We get some great dancing from the two of them here. They end up, you know, getting up on the bar and they're dancing around. And there's a really undersung performance by this bartender standing behind the bar who never says anything, but he's always moving things around and like sweeping the floor. And it's always in perfect rhythm with the song. And he's like pouring shots for them that they're like juggling basically. Yeah, I really noticed him the second time I, I watched the movie. And you're right. He, he's all over the place. He, and he's like grooving with them when they're like going back and forth. He's like leaning one way or the other as he's polishing a glass. And apparently this was one of the choreographers for the movie. And he was like specifically responsible for this sequence. Mm, okay. So I think that's kind of cool. Yeah, that is cool. This scene also, I mean, everything from when we meet Zac Efron's character up through this is another example of like basically seven scenes, seven plot points happening at once. Four minute scene here, like setting up who this character is, giving them some motivation, showing how Barnum might feel about this person, getting the spark to to have this partnership and approaching him, changing his mind and getting him on the same wavelength, like all that happens in rapid succession here. But by the end of this exchange that they have, Carlisle agrees to invest a lot of money to get the museum, you know, elevated to that next level of prestige. With the caveat that Zac Efron is now going to be Hugh Jackman's partner, and he's going to receive a 10% cut of the ticket sales. So now they're in it together. And now for another thing that happens super fast... Carlisle walks into the circus area, which I guess is the museum. Every time there's a performance or a show at the museum, it's presented as like taking place in a circus ring. And everybody's in their circusy costumes doing a dance number. Really, I think it was more like a, a amphitheater thing. They would have like lecture tours and stuff. And I, I don't know. I mean, it was people would do some kind of performance, but I don't know that we have... I don't think it was what we would think of as a circus, basically, but that's how it's presented in the movie. Y you understand. You get it. Uh, but anyway, Carlisle walks in there, 
and he sees Zendaya, who is playing a trapeze artist, who showed up for the freak audition roll call and got hired, but is not a freak. So, I don't know. It's a little odd. I mean, it makes sense to have a trapeze performer there for a circus, but she's always just hanging with the freaks and is not a freak herself. I guess the way that she's an outsider is that she is black in a society where blacks were heavily discriminated against. And it's kind of ooky and weird to lump that in with the freaks. It doesn't really ever cross over into anything too distasteful in that regard. But I am with you that I was trying to understand like whenever the, the deformed people need to pump themselves up and there's like a big song where they like talk about how they have this worth and Zendaya is always there too. I was like, why is she a part of this? This does not make sense. But uh, now we have another movie where Zac Efron is going to embark on an interracial romance and it's going to perhaps create some conflict in this mid 1800 setting and maybe earn the movie some progressive points in 2017. But again, none of this happened. It's going to be a, a prominent part of the story and the movie. This is spun from whole cloth. Can we just comment how brave Zac Efron's character was for falling in love with Zendaya? Just, he's truly a hero for doing so. She, have you ever seen her in anything before? I know she's in those new Spider-Man movies. I think I saw something. But what are what are you familiar with her from? I had never seen her in anything before this. I, I don't think that I could call to mind. But she kind of knocked me off my feet. I thought she was awesome. She's like really magnetic. She's stunningly beautiful. And she also just has this like presence and kind of this implied depth in the way that she carries herself and speaks. And I was a big fan whenever she was on screen. Yeah, definitely a powerful singer. She doesn't talk all that much. She she has probably like four lines total, but she does have a whole song and then segments of other songs. So she definitely is a big part of the movie. Carlisle arranges for Barnum and the troupe to travel to Europe, and he tells them that they're going to appear before Queen Victoria in the British court. And this actually happened. Carlisle was not involved, though. He was not alive because he's not a person. You're caught up on this detail. I mean, I guess it's not a detail. I guess it's like a central thing. But uh, as in the movie, Queen Victoria is kind of charmed by the tactless Americans, especially Tom Thumb, who is very brusque and disregards decorum. He calls her toots or something. I'll get back to this. I have a few notes on how I would rewrite this movie, but another place that Barnum took Tom Thumb was to meet President Lincoln at the White House. Mm. And I was really hoping we were going to get to see singing, dancing Abraham Lincoln. And it didn't happen. <laughs> Doing a tap dance or something. Maybe Daniel Day-Lewis could have reprised his role. <laughs> exactly. But while they're doing this European tour and... It kind of seems like it's at the exact same party. Jenny Lind walks in. So, sorry if this is confusing when we're talking about a Jenny Nicholson review. And then there's a prominent character in the movie also named Jenny. 
Uh, but Jenny Lind was a Swedish opera singer. And she did these tours across Europe that were really high profile in the 1840s. And Barnum reaches out to her, makes her a generous financial offer to come tour America. So this is something that was talked about in like the autobiography and different books about Barnum. Because this is going to be kind of his attempt at going legitimate. He's going to become like a real deal theater impresario by booking this Jenny Lind tour. This Jenny Lind character and the arc with her is the the only thing in this movie that was a, a misfire from start to finish from my perspective. I, I really didn't like anything about this character in terms of the story or, or the casting. Just very odd and kind of stalls out the story. It does kind of poke at some of the themes of the movie, but not in a very compelling way, in my opinion. I, yeah, I'm with you. There's so many weird things about this Jenny Lind arc. For one, I mean, she's supposed to be this great singer. And the actress who plays her is Rebecca Ferguson. But that's not who sings her. She lip syncs her song, which is actually sung by Lauren Allred. I, I also thought this song was Maybe the worst song in the movie. Like, I, I really didn't like it. Never be enough. It got really annoying. They kept, it went on for like three minutes, too. I was kind of tired of it. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I have complex thoughts on this. <laughs> I think it's really important, her song, in terms of what's happening not on the stage. Jenny... Nicholson also commented on this just really killing the momentum of the movie and being boring and it's just a static shot of her on the stage singing but there's stuff going on around her like we see Zendaya and Zac Efron kind of touch hands and they're holding hands but then his disapproving parents look over and he pulls away from her and there's just different things happening and I think the best thing about it is we've heard Barnum say a couple times that he hired Jenny Lind sight unseen or sound unheard, I guess. He jokes a couple times that he's never heard her perform. And, oh boy, I hope she can actually sing. And then she does start singing, and it captivates the audience. And it's all these rich people who are now won over. And you see this glowing look on Hugh Jackman's face like holy shit I did it and that is why this is an important moment to me and why I like this scene in the movie even if the scene is just another poppy number unrelated to specifics of the scene and setting and there's no there's no words about the circus there's nothing about it's the 1850s it's also interesting, because what I think you're about to say is that Jenny Lind was famous for being an opera singer, and this is obviously not an opera song. Yeah, it's very much not opera at all. And being hyped up as this opera singer, that was like an unintentional laugh for me when she started singing, and it not only was it not opera, but it bore no resemblance to opera. It was just like a, a radio ballad, you know? I, I agree. I like your, your points there, though. I like the idea of this scene. The song itself just didn't connect for me. 
Sure. Now, uh, round about this time, we also are seeing Barnum being swept away by his ambition. Now, as far as he's concerned, he's made it among the upper crust. And so at this Jenny Lind show, he's forced his freaks who are watching to wait in the wings. They have to, like, they don't get seats. They got to stand in the back away from everybody. And he doesn't invite them to the after party. But now the bearded lady sings the ultimate pump-up song, This Is Me, where the freaks kind of assert their value to themselves and all storm into the party. Pretty good song. I, I would recommend it. I'd say across the board, the songs are good, in my opinion. And the choreography is really strong and the editing that goes along with it. Yeah, the, I, I agree overall. There's The choreography is good. The songs, I, I read a couple of reviews and I think people who like musicals, like in general, didn't like the music here because it's very much like here is a song that could be played on the radio and now it's sung here and it's like very heavily produced. There's not at all any ambition towards diegesis or like convincing you that these people are like singing it in real time. Very little relevance to the story yeah in terms of lyrics but i do think they're catchy they're quite catchy and like i would be much more inclined to bop this soundtrack on its own than i would for example the scrooge 1970 soundtrack which is like very interwoven with the narrative itself and like the music and the narrative like flow naturally one to another so I can see why, if that's the kind of musical you're looking for, that this would be very off-putting. But I was enjoying what I was listening to and the, the dancing that I was seeing, for sure. Yeah, where does it rank up against the 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T soundtrack? <laughs> I think this one is more consistent, for sure. There are some numbers I really liked in 5,000 Fingers, but in terms of something I would stream on Spotify, this one, this one ranks higher. Okay, yeah, I think I would say the same. Really, the only number in Greatest Showman that is woven in with what's happening is the barroom number, the other side, as I said. But I want to talk a little bit more about Jenny Lind because the first time I saw this movie, I was just from moment to moment trying to process all the blitz of things that were happening from moment to moment and kind of comparing it to what I knew about the Barnum story. And, you know, I had expectations in my head of, oh, when is X event going to show up? And then it would happen. I'm like, oh, I'd be thinking about how they interpreted that. And then it would be on to the next thing. So it was hard for me to pick up on, like, subtleties and nuances and things. And so something that my mom said and that Jenny Nicholson said was... As soon as Jenny Lind walks in, you know that Barnum's going to cheat on his wife. I was oblivious to that the first time I watched it. I wanted to know, Dan, did you, were your alarm bells going off, as I think Jenny N. says? Oh God, five alarm. I would have bet my life savings that he was going to cheat. I mean, maybe not quite that much, but like, that is very much hinted at. It's like everything from the way that his gaze follows her. And 
he's kind of swept off his feet and this is right around the time that he's drifting away from his wife and his wife is glancing disapprovingly at her and disapprovingly at the way that he's looking at her. This is in any story like this where the main guy who has just about made it starts indulging and starts doing things that go away from his roots and like absolutely everything was pointing towards that happening my only hesitation and i think this is might be why the story didn't do it other than just trying to keep barnum likable is that there's just not enough time to like actually have an affair and the fallout from it it has to be swept under the rug because we have about 100 minutes and we have about 75 plot threads to get through (laughs) there's just no time jenny i'm only one man (laughs) i do have a i do have a brief rant can i can i rant for a moment oh please yes so jumping ahead a few scenes i'm gonna spoil it now he does not end up cheating with her in the sense that we use the phrase cheating but i kind of feel like american culture has a sort of messed up relationship or like weird relationship with the notion of fidelity, like marital and romantic fidelity. There's no nuance to it. It's kind of rooted in like the puritanical fear of sex that, you know, the dating back to the pilgrims. I kind of feel like there's like a, a, either you didn't cheat. And if you didn't cheat, you'd like you, what's the, you can do basically anything up until sex and then the instant that you cross that line then the relationship is completely unsalvageable and that is like a broken and irreparable thing and i kind of feel like in general stories i don't know don't treat the notion of fidelity with the nuance that there is i mean i know there's going to be some of that simplifying things like that in, in stories like this but It always bothers me. Like when I saw Jenny Nicholson talking about, oh, he was obviously going to cheat on her, but then he didn't. But like he kind of did in that he ran away from his family and like devoted his attention and his affection towards this woman in like a way that was not transparent with his romantic partner. And like, sure, he didn't share a bed with her. But like, I kind of feel like the take that he because he didn't do that, that he didn't quote unquote cheat is this is is an incomplete picture and i feel like it's uh i don't know i just kind of wanted that's like a a take i have in life is that people don't treat the notion of fidelity with proper nuance i guess yeah i i'm very inexperienced with regards to those matters but i i see where you're coming from (laughs) and what i will say is certainly on rewatches I see the evidence for people's alarm bells to be going off, especially in the way Barnum's wife is reacting. Uh, There's a line in Titanic where I I know I just am always constantly referencing Titanic, but uh, Rose says that her mother looked at Jack like an insect, a dangerous insect who must be crushed quickly. And so that's that's the look <laughs> that Charity Barnum is giving Jenny Lind. Definitely. I, I feel like anytime you have a relationship like this, like this, there's that exact look in The Wolf of Wall Street 
which I was watching this clip re- recently because Kristen Milioti plays the first wife in Wolf of Wall Street. But Kristen Milioti gives that exact look to uh, Margot Robbie when Leo first meets Margot Robbie in Wolf of Wall Street. It, it's it's a known look for sure. Right. But I never the first time and never since do I get the impression that Barnum is into Jenny Lind in that way. I think he sees her solely as a commodity and that she is going to be a feather in his cap that's finally going to prove that he is a real impresario and has to be acknowledged by the muckety-mucks. When he comes up to her, he says, People come to my show for the pleasure of being hoodwinked. Just once, I want to give them something real. And, like, that sounds kind of altruistic and noble, but really... It's, like, selfish. He wants to be real uh, alongside the rich people. There's a line in The Sneetches where the uh, plain-bellied Sneetches are waiting for the day when they can stick it to the star bellies and say, now we can come to your Frankfurter parties. And I think about that all the time. <laughs> It's like, when will I have achieved the milestone that I can finally walk up and say, now I can come to your Frankfurter parties. And that is what Barnum is ready to do here. Minus the homoerotic innuendo. Brian, you're always welcome to my Frankfurter parties. Uh, Thank you, Dan. But I, I do think there's, not to harp on it too much, I think what you're saying about how he views Jenny Lind is very astute, and I, I agree with that. And I think that's just emotionally intertwined with how he sees Lind and is kind of attracted to her in the sense that she represents that commodity, but also she's like a beautiful woman. Sure. And those things get kind of uh, mashed together. There's no reason they need to be mutually exclusive, I guess. Right. Before we escape the, the Jenny Lind rabbit hole. We're going to have a Frankfurter party in Jenny Lynn's rabbit hole. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Um, there's like a, an exchange where it's suggested that she also came from Humble Roots. And he she also gets Barnum's drive. And that's like a thing that draws them together. It's very brief. And I kind of feel like this the movie couldn't quite figure out the exact purpose of the character and like how Barnum was supposed to relate to her. It all kind of happens in a whirlwind of doesn't really make that much sense. And I just think the actress doesn't really convey much of anything like what, what she is. I feel like you either need to go the sort of otherworldly highbrow beauty or like the more earthy person who aligns with Barnum and who he kind of relates to as the same as him. And so I have my proposed recastings for whichever route you want to take on your rewrite. Okay, what have you got? If you go the route of having her be like this this uh, emblem of otherworldly beauty, of higher life that Barnum is striving towards, then I think Anya Taylor-Joy has that very distinctive look and very distinctive energy that could have captured that. Is that the, is that the girl from the chess show? Yes. Or... If you're going to go the route of having her be 
kind of the have the scrappy origin like Barnum and bonding after that. I got one for you. You ready for this? Okay. Jessica Roth from Happy Death Day. Especially if we don't we don't care whether or not she sings because clearly she's going to lip sync anyways. I think she would have been a, a very interesting uh, take on a like potential third wheel in in uh, Barnum's life. Oh yeah, Jessica Roth should just be in more things. Oh, I agree with that too. So yeah, Jenny Lind like professes her romantic interest in Barnum, and kind of maybe weirdly, Barnum is not into it. And maybe it is just <laughs> because we have so many other things that need to happen before the movie is over. Uh, but he's like, what? what? No, I'm just in this to make money, I, I guess. You're underselling the weirdness of it. It's like from four sentences, it goes to they're about to make out to actually I'm going to go home to actually I'm quitting the opera. It's it like happens very weirdly. Yeah, because she out of entirely out of spite, I guess she says she's going to cancel the rest of her tour, which is going to financially ruin Barnum. He's going to lose all his money because he is not into her that way. Right. Which, <laughs> uh, again, this did not really happen. At <laughs> least not this way. The uh, tour did come to an early end, uh, but according to all the sources that I've read, they did not have a romantic relationship, or at least it was not the source of the tour being called off. Um, I think uh, Jenny Nicholson's explanation was that... Uh, Jenny Lind was very philanthropic and like wanted a lot of her sales to go to charity. And that wasn't really how Barnum ran things as you might guess. And so he, he was really trying to shill and make every possible penny. And, uh, that rubbed her the wrong way, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but before she storms off, uh, Jenny Lind makes sure to kiss Barnum in front of a group of, reporters and photographers but then when this is reported on back in america they don't use a photograph it's a, it's like a woodcut drawing on the front page of the paper very bizarre just a whole bizarre 20 or 30 minutes of the movie here that's transpired <laughs> but meanwhile back on the home front things haven't been going too well either obviously you've got barnum's wife kind of pacing around, wondering what's what's going to become of her and the family. And back at the museum slash circus, you've got Zac Efron pacing around, wondering what's going to happen. Because uh, Barnum's not there to run the show. In the midst of all this, this mob who has come by every so often to torment the freaks and yell slurs and stuff, throws a lantern... And it engulfs the museum in flame. And somehow it's timed just so that, like, just as Barnum is getting off the boat back in the city, he learns that the museum is burning down. It's, it's another scene where we get seven or eight plot points over the course of a single 90-second scene. Because that's also when he learns that he's bankrupt. And also that his photo with jenny lind appeared in the newspaper and also his wife is 
maybe moving away from him, but certainly going back to her parents' house with the kids because they they can't afford the house anymore, and it just kind of happens in a whiplash here. Yeah, so nothing's going right for Barnum right now. So he goes off to, like, drown his sorrows at a bar, but for plot convenience, for wanting to have another triumphant pump-up song, the freaks come and find him at the bar. So there's a moment where Carlisle is, like, injured in the fire, and so now uh, Zendaya is, like, waiting by his bedside, kind of reevaluating whether she wants to be with him, because... They they had this whole number earlier that she said ultimately she wasn't going to get into it with him because it would be too tough to have a interracial romance in 1850. Which, I mean, fair point. I think it would be tough. Tougher than he is letting on. Anyway, he, he is saved from the fire. They're going to make a go of it. All of that to say, Carlisle is back now. And he says that he can save the show... With the 10% of the money that he has been making all along. Which makes Barnum seem extra fiscally unresponsible. (laughs) Because he was not able to save himself with 90% of it. (laughs) I noticed that too, yeah. But now everybody's all together back in this barroom setting. And Barnum sings a song called From Now On. Where... He's abruptly decided that he's not going to be this callous fame grubber that he's become. He's going to run home and embrace his family and not be so cruel to his freak friends anymore. Also, this song sounds a lot like Mumford and Sons. I noticed that as well. It's got like the banjo playing nonsensically fast in the background that all Mumford and Sons songs have. Uh, one thing that I didn't notice until this most recent watch through, though, is that during the song, the tall guy is standing up on the bar and he's drumming on the ceiling. Oh, that's cool. And I, I really like that. <laughs> it's now, it draws my eye every time I watch the scene now. So Barnum kind of runs home and patches things up with his family, saying he's going to be there for them now. From now on, as the song is called. And we get one final bit where Barnum and Carlisle are discussing what direction the show is going to take now. You know, they get some exchanges. Oh, Manhattan real estate is so expensive, we could never have another permanent location. And then Barnum says, No, we'll just rent a place in the fairgrounds, and we can do it all in a tent. And so now finally, in like the last three minutes of the movie, we finally see the... Barnum circus tent that I'm sure plenty of people went in expecting they were going to see in this movie. (laughs) You know, they were thinking, oh, this is going to be a circus movie uh, because it's about the Barnum circus when really it's 90% about the Barnum Museum, which is how he made his name as a showman. I will say to your point earlier, I didn't really think about the absence of the tent circus because the the main museum setting basically serves as that. So for me, I didn't really think about it all that much until we did see it. I was like, oh yeah, I guess we haven't had a tent this whole time, huh? So that's basically the movie. Um, while they're singing this reprise of The Greatest Show, the number that 
came at the very start of the movie. We get some action-y shots of, like, the different circus characters passing objects from one to the other. It was kind of like the cardistry scene in Now You See Me Too. And the camera's zooming around, seeing all the different people performing. And right at the high drama mark, the bearded lady reaches out like jazz fingers to Hugh Jackman and she says, This is where you want to be! But he has like a moment of reflection when he realizes, No, this isn't where he wants to be. And so he's going to run off and live out the rest of his days, I guess, off his royalty residuals with his family. And he passes the top hat to non-existent Zac Efron and says, run out there, kid. It's your circus now. And that's the end. (laughs) Well, sorry, that's not quite the end, because then we see him briefly again at his daughter's ballet, arm in arm with his wife. And I'm a sucker for this kind of ending where you get the quiet, happily ever after with the kids and the wife. So I was glad that 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 was how it ended for him. Oh, true. It is nice. But the daughter is playing the tree in the (laughs) ballet. So I was struggling a little bit this time with how I should read that. I guess the moral is you don't have to be the star. Right, you just have to be there. Be happy wherever you are. Yes. Just be there for the people who love you. I like that, yeah. And that's The Greatest Showman. So we're getting close now to the time when we will say whether the movie is good. Uh, I wanted to chat a little bit about things that stuck out to us that we liked and and some that maybe we didn't so much. Uh, I'm going to go on the record and say I think this movie has really strong choreography. I think they did a good job there. And and by and large, as I said, I like the songs. Uh, sure, they could be divorced from this setting and essentially still give the viewers the same experience, the listeners, but they're catchy. I, I'm with you on those, and I really like the cast. The cast is just super duper charming. Like Basically, everyone is fun to watch and fun to be with. I, I think we spent a disproportionate time talking about the one that didn't work for me, which was the Jenny Lynn character, but like Zac Efron's fun. We didn't really talk much about it, but Hugh Jackman is all over the place doing Hugh Jackman things. And it's just a delight. He's, he's just fun. He's smiling. He's dancing. He's charming. He's, he's a winner. You've converted me into being a, a Hugh fanboy, at least a little bit. And I really liked him here. Zendaya is great. I really liked the the woman who played the bearded lady. Just a really strong cast overall that I think does goes a long way bringing a lot of life to this movie. Yeah, you're right. So I'm going to talk a little bit about this. Uh, from now on, from now on, my commentary is going to just kind of shift into things I didn't like. Uh definitely Hugh Jackman is charming and I I'll I think I will always like Hugh Jackman but he to me is not Barnum I think when you're making a biopic of an ugly person you can cast an actor who's not super good looking they do exist (laughs) maybe they would not have the same box office draw but I think when you're doing a biopic try to find somebody who looks like the person and so often they don't do that they go for some big name actor uh, like Tom Hanks playing Walt Disney. It's like, you could find somebody who looks and sounds a little more like Walt Disney. It doesn't have to be Tom Hanks. 
But when I bring that up to my brother, he says, well, look up pictures of Charity Barnum, and she didn't look like Michelle Williams either. So, I I don't know what, <laughs> what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I mean, this goes back to the problem with biopics, to me, in general, is like, if I'm caring too much about the narrative of this person, and the fidelity, and the historical accuracy of this person... Like, how much should I weigh that? And again, for me, basically a non-factor that he doesn't look like him. But I can see as someone who spent a lot of his time researching and becoming familiar with and becoming a fan of Barnum, I can see why you would feel that way. I do think that this is maybe a combination of the script and Jackman. You don't get too much of the huckster spirit from him. Like, he's not doing too much of, like, talking things up and bringing in the crowd and being like a what you think of as the guy at the front of the circus, when I feel like Barnum probably had to do quite a bit of that in real life. Right. One of the most famous quotes associated with Barnum, although it's debated if he ever actually said it, was, there is a sucker born every minute. And we never get that kind of vibe from Hugh Jackman here. But I, I bring it up also because I have an alternate casting that I have in mind. Oh, let's hear it. Which is, I would have cast character actor david costabile and you may not recognize the name but there's a decent chance you've seen him in something uh he played gale on breaking bad he was in flight of the concords what else he's in spielberg's lincoln movie as kind of the nerdy congress guy who's lobbying for the 13th amendment uh but if you like hold up a picture of him Next to P.T. Barnum. He looks like him. He's got like the thinning hair and the big nose. Okay. And he can sing. So it wouldn't be out of line for him to have a musical role. But he does not have the Hugh Jackman star power that I will concede. But I think he could do a good Barnum. That's an out-of-the-box choice. I don't think I know this guy, but, but I like the pull. You know I always like alternate castings, so... Right. So did you have any other good things you wanted to pay homage to? I think we've hit a lot of them. I mean, in a musical, I think capturing the energy and the emotional texture is... I'm not a big musical expert in general. Like, I don't know what makes a good musical. I haven't seen all that many of them. But for me, this movie was sufficient in kind of scratching that itch and that energy and, like, striking emotions in me, I guess. And I'll also add this is kind of a feast for the eyes. It's a little bit over color graded, I think. It almost a couple scenes kind of have the feel of like the Alice in Wonderland live action one where it's extremely bright and saturated colors. But in general, it's really well shot, really pretty, good cinematography. I liked looking at it a lot. I also wanted to mention one musical number that we kind of briefly touched on, but didn't talk about. And that is the one that zendaya sings with zach efron where they're like contemplating whether they can be in a relationship and i really loved this number the song itself was pretty good but she's like doing trapeze like rope swing thing and they're like counterbalancing each other on the weight a whole bunch and just some really cool choreography and cool use of a unique physical prop and setup that was my favorite choreography in the whole movie but yeah, overall, lots of strong stuff, and I think those are kind of my main points. We can definitely pivot now, too. I know you got a couple of things here that you were less fond of. Yeah, 
So when you Google the greatest showman, the top like auto Google suggestion is it says people often ask why greatest showman is bad question <laughs> mark. And that's that's the top thing you see if you Google greatest showman. Why greatest showman is bad? <laughs> that's pretty funny. And really this movie could not have pleased everyone. I think everybody could find something wrong with it. Like, if you're a historical purist, this plays very fast and loose with the truth. If you have read books about Barnum, it's not really going to deliver what you're expecting. But then also, if you're a person who is, like, anti-circus, and there are a few, this is going to be seen as, like, whitewashing the sometimes controversial history of the circus. Right. Which leads me to another one of my points... Which is that this film is absolutely rife with shitty CGI animals. <laughs> that is true. That is a good point. They look not Which good. Is something that just makes me want to gouge my eyes out in modern day movies is all these fake animals when they're animals that really exist in real life, but to dodge issues of animal exploitation or, or whatever the case may be, budget, uh, what have you. They put in these not-so-good-looking CGI animals. And it, it draws your attention to it here because the animals are, like, dancing to the music. And they're, like, doing a lot of rhythmic things. Right. Very fake-looking. Yeah. Not a fan. <laughs> but then there's other times... There's other times when there's real horses. And in one of the scenes, the real horses are painted like zebras. <laughs> So, if you're avoiding animal exploitation, somebody is here painting fake zebras. Uh, so, I don't know. It, very bothersome. Huh. Just uh, two other things that I wanted to bring up before I'm ready to give a verdict. One criticism, I think, of Barnum is that his uh, enterprise was, like, racist. And I would say that that may not entirely be fair um it's it's complex one thing that is definitely not mentioned in this movie is that one of his first acts that he exhibited was a slave woman that he literally owned and he advertised her as like the 160 year old woman and really she wasn't that old and this was when he was pretty young i mean not to not to excuse anything uh but Later on, he actually, like, became a voice for abolition. Uh, he was definitely firmly on the Union side in the Civil War. I mean, he was too old to be fighting. But one of the fires in his museum was caused by Confederate sympathizers during the New York draft riots. I don't think that's the one that ultimately destroyed the museum. But the Confederates were not fans of his by that time. Yeah, I read and thought a little bit about this, and to be honest, I don't really have any articulated thoughts on it. Like, he clearly has some problematic stuff in his history that this movie just glosses over. On the other hand, I feel like he he's a historical figure, and I'm not worshipping him. Right. I'm enjoying a story about him. I think I don't feel evil enjoying a story about a person who had a 
checkered past and i certainly encourage people to learn the nuances of it's not just the 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 thing about where he like had the slave or whatever was going on with that and kind of showcased her but also like everything with the animals and even like the element of the quote-unquote freak show and you know it seems like he kind of had good relationships with them so he probably wasn't like abusing them but he also certainly like traded financially in the exploitation of them or at least the dehumanizing of them and i think there is a lot to unpack there and i'm i don't think we're going to unpack it in the next 10 minutes no but maybe in the next month because trading financially and exploitation is a pretty concise summary of what the circus is all about so uh i don't think we're done with that idea right Uh, for sure um The last thing, though, that I wanted to present, I I talked about that in my Fantasyland version of A Better Greatest Showman, uh, we'd have David Costabile as Barnum. We'd have the Tom Thumb visit to Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln would be dancing. Queen Victoria would be dancing. Uh, (laughs) But the last thing I would work in is one of Barnum's most famous hoaxes, which would make that element stronger, he exhibited a taxidermy freak called the Fiji Mermaid that was a monkey torso sewn onto a fishtail. And I thought we were going to get it because at the beginning, when the daughter says, you need alive things in your museum, daddy, like a mermaid. But then we didn't get the Fiji Mermaid. There was no Fiji Mermaid song, and I was disappointed. So Fiji Mermaid, Abraham Lincoln... David Costavile, those are my script notes. <laughs> there you go. Uh, what about you, Dan? Anything else? Maybe a not-so-good thing? Uh, or just any other observations you wanted to throw out there before we cap this episode off with a judgment? I've weaved in mine. The pacing is the the real backbreaker in this one. And just how overstuffed it is. You trim down, like, six of the subplots and maybe three of the characters... And certainly like three or four of the themes that it barely touches on before hopping to the next one. Give us maybe 15 more minutes in length. And I feel like the movie overall would have been a lot more satisfying. Especially the second half of the film. I felt like it lost its footing a little bit. And moments that I really wanted to land didn't land. Like when he hands over the hat to Zac Efron. That for me didn't have a big emotional payoff. And I feel like if we had just spent maybe a couple more scenes exploring that relationship and building some tension there, that could have been a really wow moment. I think there's a lot of things like that. That's kind of the overarching one. I I also have talked plenty about how I think the Jenny Lind character and segment deadens the movie a lot. Um, That is kind of my other big one. Yeah. Zac Efron was a stumbling block for me. Again, just another very likable dude. Fun to see him sing and dance, but he's not real. <laughs> he's a he's a figment. I couldn't tell how much he was actually good as opposed to I just have affection for Zac Efron. Um, so I, I can grant you that one. Okay, so Dan, as our guest, is The Greatest Showman indeed great, or at least good? I really struggled on this one because... On the one hand, it does a lot of things that I typically roast a movie for. Its script is, as just discussed, all over the place. 
really could have used some editing. It's a biopic, which amplifies the problems for me. It is pretty incoherent for a movie that's trying to be coherent from time to time. Like the just the way that the plot goes all over the place. And you're not exactly sure what a person is thinking or feeling at a moment for, for major segments. And I do think it goes a little bit downhill in the second half in just in terms of the story and how engaged I was. That said, I actually kind of just glossed over a lot of those things because of the things that are good. If you're going to be bad in some of those technical things, at least bring joy with the cast and music and dancing and just make me be smiling at what I'm watching and I will forgive much. I wanted to give this a six. I really did because it just made me smile. But then I thought about, I, I didn't give any of the high school musicals a six. I think I actually am even fonder of those. I couldn't in good conscience give it a six with all of the complaints that I had. I'm going to give it a high end five. I, I think this is a, a good movie in the sense of a spectacle and entertainment. And I would much rather see more movies like this that are kind of doofy but just pretty and fun and I want to go see them and they're not like dudes punching each other, superheroes, violence. It's singing and dancing with good looking, charming people and a story and I'm in. So I'm going to say this is a good movie for me. Well, I'm glad. So yes, we're for any newcomers rating on a one to eight point scale from the bottom of the spectrum, very not good, up to our masterpiece rating, Tor Day Good. When I first saw Greatest Showman, I was more down on it than I am now. I just found the whole thing kind of jarring in terms of pacing and the way that it was a liberal interpretation of historical fact, just kind of loosey-goosey with what actually happened, you know. I came to this from a place of research and I thought it would be more like the autobiography or other historical accounts. Not that that's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, you can get creative in a movie, especially when the featured subject is dead and buried many, many years. But I don't know. Some of the things Jenny Nicholson comments on stuck out to me, like the roller coaster of how confident are the freaks at any given moment. Or, you know, it just seems like there's cases where there's repetition when there doesn't really need to be, and maybe the script needed another pass, as Dan sometimes says. But as I've rewatched it, the good things have come to the front for me. I think there were more through lines than I noticed initially, like the apple on the desk. And it can be cheesy things, but I think it flows a little better than I initially gave it credit for. Like, in the first freak pump-up song, it's Barnum saying, Hey, you guys are great! And then later, Barnum's kind of turned against them, and the freaks have to tell themselves, No, we are great. So, that's maybe a kind of growth there. It doesn't strike me as jarring any longer. I do think it holds up okay from beginning to end. And I also land on a 5 out of 8. Good. I've certainly cranked the soundtrack many times, and I have three CD albums that I, and I have these CD albums that I still make each summer of, you know, 80 minutes of music that I jam out to, 
and it just plays on repeat in my car as I drive around from day to day. And I've had one Greatest Showman song on each of the albums for the last three years. So it has been a presence in my life, and I think it's good. Cool. So what is our next act, Dan? What is taking the ring next? It's Circus Month. I thought a lot about what I wanted to watch first. Came up with the short list. I, I think I'm going to end up, what I'm going to pick here, I'm going to really bring us back to the roots of the circus. In fact, I'm going to assign The Circus, a 1928 silent film by Charlie Chaplin. I don't know much about it, except that it is titled The Circus, the posters of a circus. I'm assuming that it takes place largely in a circus. Don't know for sure. I guess we'll find out. Um, it came up on a list of movies centered around circuses. I figure if I'm a circus newbie, let's let's get started on just vintage, straightforward depiction of the titular month. So we're gonna ha- we're gonna watch our first silent film. We're breaking that barrier, and that is 1928's The Circus. Sounds perfect. We never had a movie called The Time Loop. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> So I'm looking forward to it. I enjoyed talking about Greatest Showman with you. Absolutely. And hope you liked listening, listeners. Join us again next time here on The Goods, a film podcast. Have a good one.